Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. Welcome back to It's All Relative, the show where we talk to families and how shitty they can really be. I'm Kaylee, your host, and just to let you know, this is a true crime podcast and therefore may not be suitable for everybody. If you think that might be you, please take the out now and go find something else to listen to. In addition, the opinions and comments in this podcast are all me, me, and me, and I'm not affiliated with anybody else. But I'm also broke as a hobo, so even if you thought you might want to see me, you will get them. This is the second in a series about the Calabrese family. If you have not heard the first episode, please go back and listen to that. I would also recommend the crash course on the Chicago mob that I posted. However, it is a bit muffled because I had an audio problem, and that seems to be coming a thing as usual, I want to kick this off with a little inspirational music, so please give a listen to The Temptation. Mama looked up with a tear in eye and said, son. When last we left the Calabrese family, Frank had been recovering from a brain tuner, and he was doing his best to groom his son, Frank Jr., to take over running the crew. Meanwhile, Frank Jr. is growing up. His relationship with his father is changing, and his understanding of his own self is also developing. Now, one side of him loves to cook, and he loves food. The other side loves his dad and wants to make him proud. Senior decides that it's time for Junior to step up and be involved in his first hit. Alright, and this is from The Guardian, of all places, in an article by Ed Pilkington, titled, Frank Calabrese Jr., the mobster who shopped his dad. And I quote, the younger Calabrese's own brush with murder came in 1986 when he was chosen to, to take part in a hit on John Big Stoop Fecarata. He was to sit in the back seat of the getaway car. I was ready to murder for my dad, Calabrese says. You always need two guys in the car, and I was to go with my Uncle Nick. If I'd crossed that line, there would have been no coming back. But my uncle talks me out of it. He tells me, this ain't for you. You don't want this life. He saved me. That was the turning point for Calabrese, in both his relationship with the mob and by extension with his father. When he was young, his father was loving towards him, always ready with a big hug. But as Calabrese Sr. became increasingly under the influence of the murderous La Pietra, he changed, growing colder and more brutal towards his son. His temper became shorter, he would be quicker with his hands, more controlling. He didn't think twice about cracking you in the face. The younger Calabrese came to see how manipulative his father was, switching personalities at the click of his fingers. If you were sitting with him here right now, you'd love him. 
he'd charm you. But when you'd gone, he turned into the second personality, a controlling and abusive father, and his third personality was the killer. End quote. This was a turning point for Frank Jr. He realized he didn't he realizes he doesn't like the mob, and he wants to live his own life. He loves his father, but he is also awakening to all the pain and manipulation his dad was bringing to everyone around him. So he begins to slowly enact his own manipulation, directed at his father, to try to pull out of the crew. He is also hoping that he can make his father actually see the ugliness that has corrupted into his personality. When Frank Sr. pulls through the surgery and needs to spend time recuperating, Junior sees this as another opening for him to pull himself and his dad from the day-to-day with the crew. Frank Sr. is spending his recoup time seeing everything running without him, and he's missed a couple key hits, the Spilatro brothers being the main one. And he doesn't like it. Three months later, Frank is back in charge, but he has not fully recovered. So he does his best to be present in the field, so to speak. But the best he can do in an actual operation is to be the getaway driver and lookout. In September, Nick's friend and co-hitman, John Fecarata, has gotten sloppy, and the outfit wants him gone. The bosses know Fecarata is savvy, so they tell Nick he has to kill Big John because he's the only one that would not make Fecarata suspicious. Again, Nick hates having to kill his friend, and again, it is Big John or Nicky Slim, or probably both. So Nick goes for a ride with Fecarata under the ruse of doing another job for the mob. But just before Nick can get a shot off, Fecarata catches on and there is a struggle. Nick is shot in the arm and Fecarata escapes. There is a chase and Nick shoots Big John just before he enters a bingo hall and he falls dead. But Nick is shot. And in ditching a gun into the sewer, he drops one bloody glove and it goes unnoticed. Frank Sr. is also not where he is supposed to be in the getaway car. No one, by the way, ever explains, I mean, did they even ask, where Frank was and why he was not there. This whole debacle puts the Calabrese brothers right in line to be offed just like Fecarata. That is, if anyone ever found out. But Nick does get out of the area and eventually meets back up with Frank at the house. Where Frank wants to know where Nick was. He then realizes the magnitude of the fuck-up and starts to get a story constructed for the bosses while he drives Nick to a vet, as in veterinarian, to get his arm dealt with. The glove is found by the police, but it is blocks away from where Fecarata's body was discovered, so no one ever put two and two together. Lucky for Nick, this was the 1980s, so no one had even thought of DNA processing for crime-solving purposes, let alone linking a bloody glove to a murder halfway across town. Additionally, and I'm not sure at what point or how he became aware, but there was, secretly of course, a mob-affiliated cop who did his best to bury the glove in the property stores and keep it far away from the Fecarata investigation. And I go into detail on this particular murder because of a little thing called foreshadowing. I tip my hat to Chris Calvert from the Hitch to Homicide podcast. In 1987, Frank Jr. meets Lisa, and a year later, They're married, and she is not really aware of the magnitude of the Calabrese criminal enterprises. Like I think a lot of people do, she assumes that anyone who tries to warn her is exaggerating and rumor-mongering. 
Frank Jr. has definitely learned his lesson about keeping mob business away from the family. He knows he is living two lives and he is not a fan of it, but he can't figure out any method to extract himself out of the crew. Frank Jr. wants to be a restaurateur. He invests in a restaurant and tries to use this as an excuse to lessen the work he is doing with the Chinatown crew. But Frank Sr. is an even better manipulator, probably because he is more willing to hurt those around him, even family, than Frank Jr. is. Frank Sr. just starts showing up at the restaurant, hanging out, and soon Sr. is trying to extort money from the co-owner. This, of course, results in Frank Jr. having to pull out of the restaurant. Now, Frank Sr. has been amassing a fortune through his criminal activities, but what he has not been doing is spreading the wealth throughout the crew. Frank Sr., being the imposing man he was, no one really wanted to question where the money was. But Frank Jr. is pissed. His dad is manipulating him. He wants to live his own life, and he happens to know where his dad has stashed a huge chunk of money. It probably doesn't help that he had developed a coke habit along the way, because you know, cocaine is known for helping people make absolutely rational decisions. So, he says, fuck it, and takes hundreds of thousands from what his father would see as his own money. Now, Frank Sr. has also been slacking some on his general obligations to his family. So Junior gives some to his mom, who has been having trouble making ends meet. Granted, at this time, Dolores and Frank were divorced, but generally, under the culture of the old country, he still had a certain amount of responsibility to her, so he should have made certain she had enough to live on. Frank Jr. also gives some money to his brother, so he can go to college. He also uses a big chunk of the money to invest in some restaurants and invest in drug sales. And no, I don't mean Eli Lilly. Strangely, Frank Sr. doesn't suspect anything for a few years. This is yet again from Family Secrets, Frank Jr.'s book, quoting, Spring, 1995. It was 11 o'clock in the morning on a summer weekend. I was living in Elmwood Park when my father and Kurt appeared outside my locked screen door. When the two of them arrived, I could see the swollen cheeks and redness in Kurt's eyes. I knew right away it was about the money. Uncle Nick, Kurt, and I were the only people who knew the hiding places for my father's money. Once my father noticed it was missing, he immediately accused Kurt and slapped him around. He knew that Kurt was more fearful of him than I was. After grilling Kurt, he found out what he suspected. It was I who had taken his money. For months afterward, he would continue to blame Kurt, convinced he had played a part in the scheme, which wasn't true. He threatened Kurt that whatever money I didn't repay, he would be on the hook for it. I gazed at Kurt standing on the porch, then at my father. I saw the cold, glassy look in my father's eyes. It was as if he was transfixed by something far in the distance. The thousand-yard stare. My father was in outfit slashing mode. I knew this because my father had taught me to look into the eyes of my opponent. The eyes were the window to the soul, except what I saw in my father's eyes wasn't a soul, but icy rage. He knew who had taken his money. My two children, Kelly and Anthony, were standing in the hallway with Lisa. They had no idea what was going on, and my father wouldn't come into the house, which was a very bad sign. He wanted me to come outside. I'm thinking, do I run upstairs and get my gun, then go outside? Maybe I should shoot him through the door, or should I just go outside and talk to him? With Lisa and the kids in a possible crossfire, I stepped outside unarmed. 
Word was already on the street that my father and I had butted heads, but were back on speaking terms. My father was unaware that I had partied and sold cocaine. Had he known that, he would have killed me instantly. As soon as I stepped outside, he grabbed me by the arm and began pulling me down the street. A full head taller than my father, I did not resist or raise a hand against him. He gave me a few open-handed cracks to the face. You took my fucking money. At first, I denied it. Yes, you did. You fucking took my money. My father hit me again with a cupped hand to the temple, disorienting me, nearly knocking me down. I had to remain on my feet, otherwise my father might stomp me. I know you took it, he whispered fiercely, inches from my face. I got a gun over there in the truck. Confess right now, or else I'm going to go get it and shoot you in the fucking head. You don't understand the predicament you've put me in. It's not my money, it's Angelo's money. How am I going to explain it to him? I knew my father was lying. I had to think fast. Fuck it, I screamed, and took him aback. I spent it all. Make an appointment with Angelo, and I'll go shoot him in the head. My father looked at me like I was crazy. You can't do that. Why not? Fuck him. If he isn't right with you, you don't like him anymore. That guy doesn't respect you. I say we kill him. Let's go do it together. My father let go of my arm. No, I'll talk to him. Being busted by my dad for stealing the money was one thing, but what followed, the decree, chilled me to the bone. From now on, I own you. The restaurants are mine. Your house is mine. Everything is mine. You will report to me three times a day and do whatever I say until you pay me back my fucking money. I couldn't believe it. Everyone was trying to get away from this madman. Now I was his again. Once my father found out that he'd been robbed, he systematically set out on a mission to recover as much from me as he could. Our father-son relationship became strictly a business arrangement. I was no better off, actually. I was worse off than one of his deadbeat customers on the street. Financial reparation came in waves as my father tightened the screws. First, he took back approximately $90,000 in cash left in the till, followed by another $90,000 in money that I recovered off the streets. He then credited another $100,000 to the account that he owed from our home remodeling projects, and in the boat, the new dump truck, and two snowmobiles. It all belonged to my father now, not to mention my stake in both restaurants. For the coup de grace, he grabbed my white jeep, replacing it with an old beater that I would drive as a daily reminder of my transgressions. My father took back the money I had given my brother Nicky to attend college in Florida. Retrieving the money that I had put into the two restaurants became a stickier issue, particularly with Danny Alberga, owner of Bellowina. Danny had already had serious reservations when he agreed to bring me in as an investor in the first place. Alberga told me, I just want to make sure this money has nothing to do with your father. I don't need the aggravation. If I need money, I'll go to the bank and borrow it like everybody else. I don't want or need your father as a partner. End quote. And as you may have guessed, after this, Frank Jr.'s deal in the restaurant goes south. Frank Jr. also tried to invest in a mostly legit auto repair business that he, until coming up on 1995, was able to keep out from under his father's thumb. But his partner gets into debt and takes out a juice loan from, guess who? Frank Sr. Remember how I said that the shop was mostly legit? Well, the Fed suspected quite a bit about the not-so-legit part of that statement. The shop was also a spot where associates and made men went to get their cars fixed, so they suspected that they may be able to pick up on literal shop talk that would bury the Calabrese crew. So when Frank Sr. starts leaning on Russo, that's Junior's partner, Russo agrees to put in a wire in his shop for the feds. At the end of the op, the feds have enough to charge everyone, but there were some parts that weren't so solid. Once again, from Family Secrets, 
quote, The 1995 Calabrese RICO case had its inherent weaknesses, especially the charges against Kurt. There was the possibility that Matt Russo might not come across as the most credible witness. In a pretrial victory, the judge ruled that the Calabreses couldn't be referred to as the Calabrese Street Crew, insinuating the group's association with the outfit. After the arrest, the Calabrese-Rico case didn't attract much publicity in Chicago's newspapers. Had we contested the case and fought, Kurt might have skated, especially if my dad and uncle had pleaded guilty, with one of the conditions being Kurt's severance. Instead, the crew, led by the intimidating Frank Sr., decided to plead out and let Kurt fend for himself. The entire process, the bust, bail, plea bargaining, and final sentencing would last two years. End quote. The man who loved glorying in being a good father had just ghosted his own son. In the outfit, you are supposed to take care of your family. Frank Jr. sees the Rico charges as a blessing in disguise. He decides to use the arrest as an opportunity to not only get clean, but to sever ties from his father. Oh, and Frank Sr. doesn't help Jr. either. Jr. knows that opting for drug rehab would not only help him with his prison sentence, it would also, hopefully, help him get clean. And, weirdly, he's still trying to mend his relationship with his dad. Again from Family Secrets, I quote, As I walked to the train that would take me to the lawyer's office across the street from the federal building, several thoughts occurred. I would miss my wife. I would miss my children's formative years growing up but I was ready to do my time. I anticipated it. I was upset with my father. I was numb, living life by going through the motions. It was a long walk to the lawyer's office from the train station. As I ambled through the morning rush hour crowd, commuters bumping into me, I realized it would be my last taste of Chicago for the next few years. When I walked into my lawyer's office, there were my parents and Lisa. I was upset that my dad was there, it was evident that he was there to put on the dutiful father show for the judge. Since I was going to be sentenced and incarcerated first, he was wondering how I would handle doing federal time. He pulled me aside into an adjoining office for a last-ditch effort at a heart-to-heart. -heart. As the good father, he gave me a tight hug and held back tears. I don't know how you came to start doing that shit, he said, referring to my cocaine habit. But you broke my heart. I'll make you a promise if you make me a promise, I said. I will stop doing drugs and do my time if you promise to step back from the outfit so that we can work on building a new relationship and a new life. We embraced tighter and tearfully agreed to mend our ways. After prison, we would begin anew, both professionally and as father and son. As I crossed the street on my way to my sentence hearing to surrender, I squeezed Lisa's hand, feeling good about the pact I had just made with my father. End quote. And Junior sees a possible light in that he should be in a different prison from his dad. But then comes the news. Frank Calabrese Jr. will be transferred to FCI Milan, the same prison as Frank Calabrese Sr. And here's the thing. Junior tries to convince his dad to retire from the life and be a father and a grandfather. I quote again from Family Secrets. Over the first couple months, we mainly stuck to talking about the daily routine of prison life. Whenever the subject of leaving the street crew behind came up, he assured me that his outfit days were over. Whenever I broached the subject of his promise to pay his son's fines, he denied making such an arrangement through his lawyer. His denial was the first red flag that I spotted in testing our relationship. A second red flag came when he approached me with news that, 
a friend, had located Matt Russo, who would be approached with a sum of money. In exchange, Matt would recant his story and testify that my dad was innocent. Then I was to lie on the witness stand. I think we can beat this, Frankie. You're going to force me to get on the stand and lie for you? You do realize that once I'm up there, the government can ask me any questions they please. I can always subpoena you. Because Matt Russo had been tracked down by one of his soldiers, I became convinced that my father was still active on the streets. Then one day, he let it slip that the Catholic priest had allowed him access to the phone. The priest's line wasn't monitored. An alarm went off in my head. Was he manipulating the priest with a newfound interest in Catholicism so that he could keep in touch with people on the street? For a while, we both lived on the first floor of G Unit, 60 feet apart. Then we were getting in each other's way. I noticed he was increasingly short-tempered, especially after I nixed the idea that we share a cell. I soon discovered that he was reading my mail, collecting it from an unsuspecting guard. He intercepted a letter from Kurt, who had halted contact with him after feeling hoodwinked by his guilty plea. Kurt asked in the letter how I was holding up being in the same prison with our father. What's worse, Kurt wrote sardonically, losing your freedom or being in jail with dad? Taken aback by the tone of Kurt's letter, he returned it to the guard who passed the opened letter on to me, explaining that my father had seen it first. When I confronted my father, a heated argument ensued. After our row, we became estranged and didn't speak for days. As I walked past him on the yard, we bumped shoulders and kept on walking. I noticed the cold, murderous, thousand-yard stare in his eyes. But inside the prison walls, I no longer feared him. By early 1998, my father was going through cellmates in rapid succession. Everything had to go by his rules. No eating in your bunk. Take your shoes off before entering the cell. Wash your hands after you pee. If you open the window, he close it. At times, his cellmates would come to me to complain. Some were afraid that he would get angry at them. I defended my dad, careful not to reveal the strain between the two of us. I needed to maintain a facade that we were friends while I evaluated his actions and true intentions. End quote. And at this point, Frank Jr. realized that he really only had one way out. The following is from an A&E special, Mobsters, Chicago Gangster Betrays Father. I had reached the bottom. I didn't care no more when I got there. I was on drugs. I lost my family. I had nothing to fear anymore. And so what I did, I decided that I wanted to change my life. I spent eight months with him. I would ask him questions to answers I already knew. And I found out that he deceived me every time. He'd tell me he wasn't doing anything on the street. I'd find out from people on the street he was running things. Frank Sr. was never going to let him have a legitimate life and just live a normal, regular, everyday life as he wanted to do. Frank Jr. realized that my father was going to kill me or I was going to kill my father once we got back out on the street. As long as he would have let me go and let me lead my life the right way, I wouldn't have done this. But he didn't. July 27, 1998. Frank Calabrese Jr. typed a letter and mailed it to the FBI. He told us how he was in tremendous fear of his dad. He did not want his father to get out of prison. It was valuable information, but the feds wanted more. They convinced Frank Jr. to take the next step, wear a wire and secretly record conversations with his own father. February 14th, 1999, in an unmarked room in the Milan Federal Prison, 
the FBI took the first steps in an operation they dubbed Family Secrets. The gravity of it is, is immense. I just remember thinking, I can't believe that I'm sitting in here about to put recording devices on somebody who's going to go cooperate against his own father. Wiring up was the easy part. Out in the prison yard, Junior had to get his father to talk without getting caught. He could be killed inside of a prison if it's learned that he's actually cooperating. For those of you that know anything about the mob and know anything about mob culture, the concept of talking to the police, of talking to the feds, is anathema. The concept of turning on your own family is also anathema. So try to comprehend, one, how the feds must be looking at this letter that they get from Frank Jr. from prison. They have to be thinking there's some sort of a trick, some sort of a catch, because mobsters don't talk to cops. And two, on top of that, mobsters' sons don't talk to the cops about their own family. In addition to that, try to comprehend the absolute danger Frank Jr. would be in, in doing what he has proposed to do to wear a wire inside the prison yard. To say that he could have been killed is a bit of an understatement. And before I end this episode for today, I want to leave you with a bit of how Frank Jr. came to this decision about his thought processes. The following is from an interview with Frank Calabrese from a YouTube post called The Underworld, Killers, Kings, and Clowns. You Tell know, us about that, that long, dark night of the soul, Frank, when you had to deal with the fact that you had to do what you did. I mean, what kind of a struggle are you going with yeah. there in prison by yourself? You knew you had no choice. Tell us how you came to that realization. Well, it wasn't overnight. It was 20 years in the making. Okay, but it was, it was finally at that point where, you know how sometimes, you know you got to make a decision, but all your choices suck. Yeah. And it came down to two choices. Do I wait till my dad gets out and confront him? Is he going to change? Yeah. Okay, or, or is he going to try to kill me? Okay, oh, well, good. I'll wait for him. I'll kill him. Well, let me tell you something. He's pretty good at killing. He taught me a lot, but he's pretty good at killing. <laughs> or do I cooperate with the government who I was raised in my neighborhood, that's the worst thing you can yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. The plan that I had was this, and this is what a lot of people don't know, unless you read the book or you get into my story, was I made a business deal with, with the government. No time off, pay all my fines, but I'm not gonna help you take down the mob. This is about me and my dad. So in reality, all I did was open the doors. Next time on It's All Relative, we will discuss those open doors and Uncle Nick's role in opening some of the blinds, too. But for now, this is the end of It's All Relative. I will close this episode with some Leslie Gore, and I will see you next time 